You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker, Rob Carver, Mark Resimczynski, Richard Brennan, Mort Siebert, and I, Niels Kassel-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, today and next week will be very special episodes indeed, because it's the first time that we're all together for one big conversation and debate. As you know, this podcast series is all about voicing our differences on the one topic that brings us together, namely systematic investing using the often overlooked but very robust strategy of trend following. We are recording on December 15th, and this conversation will be split into two parts and published on December 25th and January 1st. And therefore, there will, of course, not be any market wrap or performance updates. Now, we have a long list of great topics that uh, we'll be focusing on. But before we kick it off with the first topic, perhaps uh, we can do a Maybe a quick round with some of you and, and just ask uh, what kind of preparations you've been doing for this debate, any special training for this conversation. Of course, if you're wearing any protective gear and looking at all of you, I think I have to go to Rob first because you do seem to have uh, brought along some protective gear today. How are you doing, Rob? I'm I'm disappointed that no one else has made the effort. So this is a Christmas episode. I'm, I'm wearing reindeer antlers and a, and a jumper. Oh, and Rich, Rich has just put on a Santa hat, so that's good. Um, yeah, let me think. I did a 30-kilometer bike ride yesterday to get myself in sort of top cardiovascular condition. Um, and uh, I've been um, well, bench-pressing um, copies uh, of various trading books, so, which are all very thick, meaty books. So I'm feeling I'm feeling up to it, yeah, physically at least, if not mentally. Fantastic. Good to hear. Now, as mentioned, we've got a great lineup of topics um, that we all shared with each other uh, more or less beforehand. I do want. It's funny. I was. Um, I got a quote today from. Uh, yeah, as as a Dane, I, I'm aware at least that there is a a philosopher called Søren Kierkegaard, uh, who's pretty famous uh, here in Denmark. And for some reason, there was a very uh, appropriate quote that I saw today uh, that goes something like, "For without risk, there is no faith, and the greater the risk, the greater the faith." And I think we are we're all pretty faithful about trend following. So uh, let's just uh, jump into it. So round one is um, where we all uh, have a topic that we want to bring up and, and we'll have a few of us uh, commenting on, on each of them and then we'll have some surprise rounds uh, later on as well. But the first one came in from Rich and uh, yeah, Rich wrote into uh, to all of us, how times change. The trend perhaps is not dead after all. When considering trend-following performance post-March 2019, Clearly, we've had a resurgence in performance of classical trend-following models. Was the difficult performance period between 2010-2019 the outlier when compared to long-term historical performance? With any, with another major market correction, will we find that the central banks still have the power to manage market volatility with QE methods, or have they run out of gunpowder? Now. Because we can't comment on all of it, uh, all of us, I, I thought I wanted to ask you, Mark, because you do think of sort of also kind of the global macro stuff. You and I often talk about central bank action and so on and so forth. So, um, and and sort of from a high level, uh, what do you think of Rich's uh, kind of uh, topic here? 
Well, I think there's always been an ebb and flow in the performance of trend following. Uh, it has done very well over the very long run when we've looked at the historic record and the researchers have looked back 100 years. It's probably uh, the best single strategy you could follow. That being said, for any 10-year period or for any sub-period, you could have poor performance. And, and I think it, uh, I think for many people, we were always scratching our heads why you know trend following didn't do better in the post-great financial crisis period. We uh, we suggest that uh, central banks were the were the cause of that, but I don't think that we've really sort of teased out what are the reasons for when trend following will do poorly. We do know that it'll do well during crises, but crises are somewhat are by definition almost unexpected. And because they're unexpected, then we can't really predict when will there be a period of good trend following. Uh, that's different than, let's say, value investing, where we can let's say it's associated with the uh, business cycle. So, so I think the, the problem has always been with trend following is, is, is that other than the crisis periods, we can't really sort of say what, is the, what are the uh, economic environments where it's going to do well. Interesting. Um, also, maybe in the, in the sense that uh, one of the things certainly that we've been talking about is just also how trend following might be doing better in periods of inflation. So I wanted to ask another uh, one who's been around for a long time in this industry, and that's you, Jerry. When you look at this period, 2010, 2019, does that feel like the outlier period to you uh, as rich um, sort of questions or how do you see kind of the longer term uh, performance of trend following and, and where we might um, be heading? Well, I have a great, a great hope now. I mean, things have been so good. We're kind of hopefully back to normal. You know, when we started, we, um, our marketing material was that we made more money than stocks. And we had, of course, better risk because of all the markets and the shorts and things. So hopefully we'll get back to that. Um, you know, stocks were so good and the bonds were so good. I, I, I agree. We have to go back and analyze that period. And I've always traded a lot of commodities and there were like uh, no longs really. And anytime a CTA talks about their shorts or especially the short commodities, you know, it's, it's really not a lot going on. Um, so at least half my portfolio was pretty dead, but it certainly is good to know that we kept them in there, uh, kept those commodities in there. And, and then they, they're really paying us back. But um, yeah, I'm, you know, right now, I mean, how could you be, how could I be less than extremely excited for the future? Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, so um, is there anyone else who wants to jump in on this particular question before I move on to the next one? Yeah, Rob, go ahead. Yeah, just really quickly, I think one of the interesting things about trend following is it's taken advantage of, of different kind of episodes. So yeah, in the 70s, a lot of inflation did very well then. It's done very well out of the kind of secular trends in equity and bond prices over the last 30 years or so since then. So I think it, it has this nice function that it kind of adapts to the environment in a way that other strategies perhaps don't. So you can think of strategies that would do very well, you know, perhaps in an inflationary environment. If we don't get an inflationary environment, they perhaps won't do as well. Yeah, and maybe just to round it off, I mean, I did see a study recently that looked at not so much inflation, but actually looked at the real rate of return, so real interest rates. And obviously at the moment, they're extremely negative, even in the US adjusted for inflation. And actually this study showed that when real interest rates get to an extreme, so either extremely high or extremely low, 
that's when historically CTAs uh, have done the best. So let's see what happens because right now real interest rates are as low as they were back in the uh, 70s. Okay, next one came in from Jerry. It's somewhat related. Um, and um, and Jerry wrote, why not trend following plus nothing? Shouldn't the CTAs advocate for that? Is there a need for convergent trading and trades? Uh, and trades, yeah. Diversified systematic CTA trend following is the perfect portfolio, not the perfect hedge. Is Cocoa an independent return stream? Okay, so this obviously ties back to something we've uh, spoken about um, a lot. Rich, maybe I can come to you on this one, kind of uh, also from the diehard, diehard trend following perspective. What what do you think? Uh, do you agree with with Jerry or? Yeah, look, I, I strongly agree with Jerry here. Um, you know, I'm a purist, so um, the way I'd say it is that trend following as a technique, I think, is a, is a is a strategy geared towards delivering absolute returns. It's not geared to delivering smooth returns. Um, so if we embrace that philosophy, um, what, what our technique does is offer this potential for long-term wealth. Um, what, it, what it's saying is that um, if you want a smooth ride, then perhaps you should go to a fund of funds as opposed to um, a go to a trend-following manager who's trying to utilise convergent techniques to smooth his returns. I think that actually compromises the, the long-term returns generated by a trend-following strategy when you start integrating convergence into trend-following programs. So what I'd say is that if an investor um, is seeking a smooth ride, then a substantial component of that allocation needs to be trend-following. But... Uh, look for alternate managers who offer offer a, um, a correlation benefit to that offset that um, is a highly volatile equity curve the trend following brings, as opposed to investing your efforts in trend following managers who style drift towards adopting convergence in it. I think that when you see a fund manager adopting techniques to style drift, it's really a signal to me that they're there to attract AUM as opposed to being there to attract long-term wealth. So um, I view it quite harshly when I see a trend follower start diluting their returns and diluting their volatile equity um, returns with alternate techniques, typically convergent in nature, that sacrifice that, that non-linearity that we achieve. Yeah, I, I want to get a quick comment from both you, Rob, and, and Moritz on, on this one. So maybe I can start with you, uh, Rob, um, because you you do include more than trend following in your overall portfolio. So maybe you're well-placed to talk about this. I, I take Jerry's point, trend following plus nothing. I understand that. It's, you know, in, extremely diversified and, and, and has shown that it's incredibly robust. Why would there be an an, an an kind of an interest for you to uh, to go outside trend following? Because I'm a, a big believer in the diversification of different sources of, of return, risk premium, if you like, in the kind of academic jargon. So I believe that there are lots of ways out there that the financial markets will essentially pay you money. And trend following is one of those ways. Um, and the, the nice thing about trend following historically is, is it's been used as an addition to a kind of long-only portfolio. 
um, is that a lot of the properties are trend following when added to that portfolio, the kind of thing together makes a hell of a lot of sense. So for example, you know, long equities in particular is, is, an, is generally negative skew. Throw in the trend following positive skew, that irons out the skew nicely. It irons out the drawdowns you naturally get in, in, in equities and bonds. Um, so so the, the, for me, just limiting yourself to trend following is, is kind of like going out to play golf with just one club. Now, don't get me wrong, it's a very good club. Uh, and actually, you know what? If you put a gun to my head and said, Rob, you could only earn one source of risk premium, I'd probably be with Rich and say, yeah, I'll just have a trend following strategy because I know that would be better in isolation than, say, a long only equity strategy in isolation or some, you know, or say a carry strategy in isolation on which the, the drawdowns that skew would just be too horrible. Um, but you're not, you know, generally speaking, we're not limited to one club. We are allowed to play with lots of different clubs. So um, I, I, for me personally, I'd like to go out on the golf course with, with, with my full set of clubs and be able to, to play with, with them all at the same time effectively and have all these diversified source of, sources of risk premium. Um, now, if, I think if you are going to trade trend following as your only strategy, um, I think you'd probably want to make certain changes to it. So, for example, um, one of the things you're trying to do when you add trend following to a long-only portfolio is to say, well, I don't want to have a, a trend following strategy that, for example, has got too much of a long bias in it because I know I'm already earning my kind of, you know, my long, long equity return stream from my long-only portfolio, when I layer on my trend following on top, I don't want to have something that's going to give me even more of that return stream. I want something that's going to have more of a neutral kind of bias. But if you said to me, Rob, you've got to run trend following, nothing else, I'd probably, you know, do something like have more of a bias towards very slow signals that would effectively mean that most of the time I was long equities and bonds and earning that premium that way because I'm not being allowed to earn it through having a, a separate allocation to equities and bonds that I've got now. Fair enough. Moritz, um, you've also dabbled a little bit outside trend following. I think it's fair to say. What uh, what inspires you to uh, to take that approach? And maybe you've done a little bit more of that uh, than than a few years ago. Yes, but but I haven't really dabbled that much outside of trend following. Everything that I do um, actually comes back to trend following. And, and the reason for that is trend following, I think, allows me to stay in the game. It's the stuff that lets me sleep well at night. Um, I think I can survive the markets as a trend follower, and this is why I do it. Um, like Rob was saying, I have a variety of different tennis rackets in my tennis bag. I'm not a big golfer, but I play tennis. Um, the main tennis rack that I'm playing is directional trend following, very purist, um, probably very closely aligned with what Richard and Jerry are doing. Um, and then, as you know, I trade spreads, but the underpinning of that spread system is trends. Um, I sometimes use options, but I use them in a trend following way um, to amplify the outliers, to get even a greater, you know, um, convexity into my return profile, but it's all trend following um, based. And and honestly, so what I don't do is, is I, I don't have mean reversion or buy the dip or, or any of these things in my portfolio, um, other type of, you know, risk factors, because I don't like the properties. Uh, and I don't think that many of them will be sustainable over, over the long run. And, and what I also want to add is, you know, when you look at other managers and you know i sometimes do that um you look into the databases you speak to other managers and some of them are having fantastic years this year some of the energy managers for instance some of the managers that trade power only uh, when you look into the databases i mean they're they're up like 100 percent or even more some of them are just you know hitting the ball out of the park um but when you speak to them 
they may not be using a systematic trend following type of system in the way that you, I, and we all would speak about it. But at the end of the day, they kind of catch a trend. They kind of catch the momentum. They may not classify themselves as trend followers, but they make money because they jump on a trend. That is essentially what they do. So most of the money in markets is because you participate in a trend. So just give into that, accept it and love it, and follow these trends, as many as you can possibly find. Um, run them to the end. Be a man about it, sorry to say. Enjoy the volatility and hit the ball out of the park. That's it. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely. Uh, and actually, you bring up a, um, a good point. Because in, in a funny way, I've always thought, why do people say they're not trend followers? Because deep down, I mean, how many people really make money when markets don't move? I mean, I would imagine they always need some kind of a move in a direction that they get right. They may not classify themselves as a trend follower. But anyways, I do want to give you, Jerry, you brought up this trend following plus nothing. We've heard you talk about this uh, for many years. Uh, do you want to comment on any of these uh, responses? Do you want to just uh, dig in a little bit further? Of course I do. It's my it's my question. You didn't ask me about what I was wearing, but um, I'm wearing my Ted Lasso t uh, sweatshirt, so I'm trying to be a really nice guy today, you know, and uh, <laughs> be very respectful to all this heresy. Uh, so you know, the thing of it is, is that um, convergent trading is just not safe, and Rob's analogy f uh, falls apart because. Um, I'm for all, no one has more diversification than me. No, uh, I trade lots of different systems. They just all have, a, you know, safety mechanisms like uh, diversification, shorts, small losses, conservative money management, moving my trade level up slowly. Uh, but I'm not going to play a game that could possibly kill me. So I'm all for uh, diversification to the extent that um, adding positive convex convexity strategies and strategies that help you stay in the game, like Moritz said, and letting profits run and uh, doing the trend following thing, there's really no better alternative. Stocks are certainly not safe. Uh, Richard said, if you want something smooth, you should you could add convexity with these 50 to 90% drawdowns we've seen. I don't want that kind of uh, addition to my portfolio. And we all can still trade stocks. So whatever mystical, magical, thing that you want to assign to stocks that somehow they are going to have this premium forever. Uh, well, then put those in your portfolio and trend follow them with the appropriate uh, risk controls and things that it takes to uh, stay alive and preserve your capital. Um, so it's, and then, you know, you and I have debated, um, and I'm throwing this open to the group because I really don't know if Coco is a, um, independent return stream. You know, you've mentioned, Niels, uh, something about Dalio saying you only need uh, 14 independent. 15 to 20, yeah. Okay, yeah, okay, 15 to 20. So we, I trade 130 some markets. So do I have 130 or um, is commodities, are my, is the commodities sector one? I mean, cocoa doesn't look like some of the other commodities. Um, are all the FX markets and bond markets and uh, stocks that I trade, are they one as well? A lot of my stocks, unfortunately, have been in downtrends for a while, so I've been short those. So I really, that's the, uh, how are you going to get a better portfolio? You know, um, 
Mike Dever sent me an email once, a uh, marketing email, and it said, uh, the perfect hedge. And I called him up and I said, dude, stop. It's not the perfect hedge. He goes, yeah, you're right. I just have to suck up, you know, to what people think I should say. I'm like, it's the perfect portfolio. He goes, yeah, yeah, you're right. It's the perfect portfolio. So why do we apologize for it and, and assume that it should be 5 or 10% when we can get every single market we want in any sort of um, weighting we want? If you want, your clients want 50% stocks, just trend follow them and add the commodities, currencies, and bonds as well. So definitely, thank, thanks for that. Definitely let Rob uh, comment on that. Before uh, before you do, Rob, though, I just want to say, so what Dalio actually says, um, Jerry, is he says you want 15 to 20 uncorrelated return streams, right? And this is why we can't say we trade 120 uncorrelated return streams because a lot of them are pretty correlated. But that's that's the principle. I just want to make sure that... Uh, that we got that clear, but Rob, uh, clearly um, a little bit of a hint to you and 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 your your thoughts on this. So uh, why don't you? Uh... Yeah, yeah. So I mean, diversification isn't just across asset classes. Of course, Jerry's completely right that that if you're trading futures, so it's actually not really about trend falling per se. But if you're trading futures, you you've got a much wider access to different asset classes, and therefore the ability to diversify. And of course, you can add stocks onto that as well. And we just we've discussed that before. Um, but it's but it's return streams isn't just about the the things you're trading. It's about how you're trading them. So you know, to take something that that forms a reasonably large part of my portfolio, and that's carry. I believe that being exposed to carry is a good thing. I believe that having carry and trend following in my portfolio is very powerful because one is slightly negative skew, the other is positive skew. They they complement each other well in terms of diversification. And of course, I've got risk controls and diversification, and all this good stuff in the in the carry as well. As I have in the trend following, but but to me, and I'm, I have to be honest with you, I don't play golf either. So may, maybe I shouldn't have chosen the, the golfing analogy. But but and, and Moritz, I hadn't even realised you could own more than one tennis racket. But uh, anyway, um, the the to me, it's just it's just kind of handicapping yourself. Now, obviously, adding carry into your portfolio is going to improve some of your statistics and not others. So yes, it will reduce your positive um, um, skew. Um, but to me. To me personally, that trade-off's worth it. Of course, not worth it for everybody, and I can completely understand where Jerry's coming from. But you know, I just thought I'd explain what, why I do what I do. Niels, there, there's an important point in here, and uh, because there's also a commercial aspect when we think about it. I think that, and, and as purist, you could sort of say, if I had one strategy I wanted to follow, it would be trend following. But as soon as you start saying I, I have to go out and solicit and get clients, and I have to run a business. And what you find out is, is that trend following is like, you know, having castor oil or bad medicine. It may be good for you, but most investors don't want to have lumpy returns. So everyone plays with their return stream to try to smooth it out because that's the only way that you're going to really attract clients. And the big problem for trend followers is that they still haven't been able to get over the hump of explaining why you need to have lumpy returns and take periods of poor performance for that occasional good period of good performance. And then when you look from the other bias that you see from a customer's perspective, is that instead of looking at their total portfolio, they still look at every line item that they have in their portfolio. And if they look at you know some of their traditional investments doing well, and you see this sort of poor performance for trend following for long periods, they get antsy. They start sort of saying, why is this occurring? And and so you see that a lot of the purists from 
20, 30 years ago, uh, a lot of them then slowly start to blend other strategies in an attempt to try to be more commercial to attract clients or to uh, appease the behavioral bias of clients. Rich, you want to weigh in on this, I know. Yeah, look, um, this, this Ray Dalio comment about uh, maximal diversification up to 20 markets. Now, I personally think that's a bit of a hangover from Markowitz. Um, I think this is, it, when, when you've got a fund of funds or you've got a, a, a hedge fund that's seeking smooth returns, yes, I can understand how the marginal benefit of diversification dilutes but I would say that trend following is seeking much more than smooth returns. That is a, a secondary consideration. Our primary consideration is hunting for these outliers. And that's where we need to vastly expand our diversification to increase our trade frequency for these unpredictable, non-linear events. So that's because our method is targeting the tails of the distribution. It's not targeting the entire distribution. It's focusing on the tails. And in that distribution area, we're dealing with a, a, a more novel form of distribution, like a Pareto distribution, as opposed to the bulk of our trades being captured by a normal distribution. So when we're dealing with the benefits of smoothing returns and we think in terms of a normal distribution, yes, there is a, a level of optimal diversification where any further addition of, of a different um, uncorrelated technique, the marginal benefit does get far lower and squeezes and, and diminishes. But that is not the case with the particular technique that we are applying and that area of the deter returns that we are targeting. So we want this non-linearity. We want these outliers. We need to diversify over hundreds, you know, or, or many more um, return streams um, that do hopefully offer a degree of uncorrelated benefit, but that's not our primary consideration. It's hunting for these these anomalies. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, uh, Jerry, you want to add something? Yeah, that's right. So he's talking about 20 and we're talking about 100 or 200 because we're trying to, we're playing a totally different game and trying to Max find these trends. And I think it's no probably coincidence in my trading that when I got serious about that and I went from 50 to 100 and then 130 markets, my performance picked up because I picked up over the past year and a half, a lot of these crazy markets that I never traded before that had these big, huge moves. I think one of the things that we haven't done at all is educate clients uh, on this, what is classic trend following and hunting outliers. And it and we don't trade single stocks, so we don't, we haven't hunted any outliers in that category. And there's been quite a few, right? Uh, so we've really dropped the ball on confusing um, the, you know, what's been educating people is uh, the vol targeting and the, the ideas we add to the classic trend following that hunts outliers that have something to do with convergence and smoothness. We've done a great job of that. And there's a lot of CTA firms still, regardless of performance, have billions under management. So I think there hasn't been much educating of clients. Not, I agree with Mark, not that they would accept it, not that maybe the results would change. We just haven't seen any, uh, I trade stocks, I hunt outliers. It's not all about diversification and smoothness. As Richard said, it's um, 
quite a bit different. And so that's not out there any longer. I don't know if it ever was out there when, when there was more classic trend following back in the 90s, but it's certainly something that would maybe appeal to people. Performance intoxicates people, and the classic trend followers with trading lots of markets, they should be out there uh, spreading that gospel. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. Okay, so let's uh, let's move on uh, to uh, another topic. Something that I think we all agree. Yet I think we do have maybe different definitions a little bit on on this thing. It's it's actually a topic that came from Mark, but it's uh, there, there was another one that was very tightly related to uh, to uh, from Jerry as well. And and Mark wrote in to override or not to override. That's the question. Um, and then also you wanted to sort of uh, put it out there, Mark, about whether that does, does that mean that we should close down over holidays or, or whatever. And then Jerry weighs in with something uh, where he says rules-based trading can be used as an excuse and permission to include non-robust ideas in a system. It's a rule, so it must be okay, is not correct. I say that any type of system that has too many rules or rules that aren't backed up by sufficient sample size is essentially used to override more robust classic trend following principles and are not okay, even if they are rules. Um, and you were talking about, I mean, you brought this up because we talked about earlier this, uh, the last year, sorry, in 2020, um, this period, February, March, where clearly it came, became clear that some uh, of, of the uh, well-known uh, CTAs out there had done some manual overrides to their system. Although I have heard in the past, uh, both you, Jerry, and Moritz talk about some manual overrides that you've done. Um, I remember one time, Moritz, you talked about a bond getting out of German Bunds because everybody thought that it would, you know, how long can this trend go on? And you came on a few weeks later saying, well, unfortunately, it does seem that it continues. So, so maybe I can start with you, Moritz. Talk to me a little bit about this you know, how pure should we be when we say we are rules-based? I mean, is there any room for any overrides or is it all or nothing? And if we do choose to override, uh, quote-unquote, um, how does that tie in with our backtests? Uh, because we don't override in our backtest. What, what are your thoughts on this topic? Yeah, I think we spoke about that um, really before. I mean, I, I really try to keep any overrides to an absolute minimum. Ideally, nothing. Um, I see myself as somebody overriding a system only as a defensive move. So say I'm in big trouble and I'm in a larger than expected drawdown or in a larger drawdown than I want to be. And uh, I feel it. I, you know, my trading becomes, I start thinking about my portfolio all day long, you know, and, and I start thinking about it at night. That is not what I want. My, my ideal state of mind and, and, and daily modus operandi is to not even think about that portfolio and occasionally have a look at the P&L. Just make sure that the trades are being put in, that the things are being rolled, that nothing is forgotten, that the machine works. And other than that, I'll let the thing do what it wants to do. But if there ever were a point in time, and maybe there is a point in time in the future uh, where, say, I'm in a massive drawdown, um, then, yeah, I, I, I may put on some, you know, um, I, I, I may actually put, put off some positions in order to have less risk um, and become more even keeled. That is kind of like the overruling that I would do with my trend following system. Other than that, nah, just um, just follow the, the rules and, and do the trades. Yeah. Who else has some strong opinions about this? I mean, I have to say, and I'll raise my hand and say that 
I have never been a big fan of of of, of overriding, uh, and I guess now that I work for a firm that has you know um, you know never never done it so to speak, and 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 it, it's one of the core principles of of what we do uh, is is not to override something that uh, our founder was incredibly vocal about. So that's probably the camp I come from. But I, I want to hear some some pros and cons here, because we clearly know it happened in March of 2020 from from a, a number of people. Rob, feel free to jump in, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm generally a fan of not overriding. And I have to say, I found it much easier since I started just my trading with just my own money. Whereas before in an institution, I think there's a lot of pressure, directly or indirectly from clients, when things are going badly to make a change to your system. Uh, and often it's like, it's not even clear what the change is, just like, just change something until you make money, you know, which isn't isn't perhaps super helpful. Um, I, what I like to do is to um, think about um, there are there are instances in where I do kind of override the system, but I try and do so in a systematic way and only for very good reasons. And an example would be something I've talked about on the podcast before, which is um, excluding or not trading markets that are too expensive to trade or not liquid enough, and then doing so in a very systematic way by having very systematic rules about when markets move in and out. Um, so I didn't stop trading the Bund um, like like Moritz did. But I did stop trading the Schatz, which is the two-year German bond future. And I did that because the, the volatility dropped so low that on a risk-adjusted basis, it was really, really expensive to trade. So at that point, I stopped trading it. So you could argue and say, well, that was an override role. That wasn't pure trend following. But it was done, A, for a very good reason, not because I thought it'd be more profitable doing it that way, which I think is, is where you're really going down the slippery slope. Not even because I thought it would reduce my risk, which, you know, Moritz mentioned as a potentially good reason for doing an override. But because, you know, I knew it would be trading in such a way that it would be essentially outside the expectations of the way my system wants markets to behave in terms of cost and liquidity and so on. I actually didn't stop trading the Bund, Niels. Not, not sure. I think what, what no, we spoke you, about you in that episode is... No, you just caught a position is, right. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. You didn't stop trading it. Yeah. Exactly. But but some some people that I do know, they they actually did that because they have oh, the right. opinion that because yields are at zero, they therefore cannot go negative. And there is this zero bound. And they were wrong. So, you know, when German yields hit zero, uh, they liquidated the long position because they thought that's it. That's the floor. And and I didn't do that. Um, yields went negative and the Bund moved higher. So <laughs> um, it, it's an example of, you know, not interfering with your system and just letting the markets do what the markets do is, is actually the better thing there. Um, adjusting or removing a market like, you know, Robert was saying from a risk perspective, I've done that a couple of times with, you know, short-term interest rates. Um, I'm cognizant of the fact that, you know, if short-term rates and LIBOR and Euribor and Eurodollar, if that stuff doesn't really move at the front end of the curve, I'm not talking, you know, deck 23, deck 24. I mean, you can trade them further out. But if you traded the three-month contract, I mean, there's really nothing going on there. So you, you'd be, A, trading massive size. You are paying massive bid offer, even though the thing is liquid. You're... Um, have paying massive commission because you're trading so many lots and you have a all of a sudden created a tail event because if if anything happened some something weird um and you're sitting with that big size you may actually get wiped out so i'd rather trade uh the btps um and like longer dated interest rate markets where there's more volatility but have those in smaller size yeah i think that's a great point also i mean it kind of reminds me of the time when the euro and the swiss was kind of picked and uh and all the risk was actually being still trading that uh spread 
uh, across and even though a lot of people did and, and obviously lost money on, on the day when the Swiss National Bank decided uh, not to pick it anymore. Rich, you wanted to weigh in on this one. Yeah, look, uh, the only thing I was, I was thinking was that um, I, I regard that there, there's golden rules of your, your strategy which are based on empirical testing or back testing over extensive data sets, a large data sample, but these rules are, in, in our world of trend following, are universal rules. They're not specific to a particular market. They're universal. But there are also issues associated with um, uh, things that I, I call local disturbances, things like transaction costs, broker costs, spreads, things like that, which they don't, uh, they don't sort of integrate into the rules-based approach, but they certainly do impact on our performance. So, for instance, if I find my broker's spread suddenly incredibly widening out or, you know, when we're dealing with um, palladium, I think the spread is 3,000 points on, on, on my market, um, they would be considerations that I would say, well, uh, whilst I do have these universal rules uh, which are applicable to all of my markets, these local differences in relation to transaction costs, local specific things, um, prevent those rules from being enacted in accordance with my testing. So that's where I'd, I'd vary my rules. And also, I do think that we need some form of adaptive process in our workflows um, to recognise that um, the nature of trending conditions does change over time. Not necessarily that outliers cease to exist, but the impacts of noise and mean reversion on those outliers does play a, a changing role over time in different market regimes. So when we have these rules or these universal rules, I would say your only time that you would consider changing or updating those rules would be based on empirical testing, once again, over this universal um, um, the market selection um, and uh, through this empirical validation process using a large data, data sample, if it warrants the changing of the rules, then consider that as a basis of ensuring your your systems adapt over time. Yeah. Any thoughts here, Jerry, before we... Yeah. yeah. Um, so what I meant by this question was that, um, and I agree with what Moritz was saying, and that is that, uh, you know, we have this overriding universal rule that we're going to stay in the game. And so we don't want to violate our system and we want to follow the rules. But, um, hey, when all hell breaks loose in March of 2020, I'm going to reduce, I'm losing money so quickly that uh, hopefully once every two or three years, I, I don't have to do this, but I'm going to reduce my risk and survive and uh, wait till, you know, all hell quits breaking loose. So I think ironically that's criticized. Oh, you stop following your system. But in order to preserve capital and stay in the game, whatever you do is fine. And uh, especially if, if you have all your uh, trading ideas and your system together, the where this is so infrequent, you don't, you're not trading too large, you're trading robust, you're trading lots of markets. And so once every two or three years, you have to do this. But ironically, what's, what weakens uh, systems is bad rules with low sample size that are practiced on a daily basis. I vol target every day. Well, no, no good. 
I, every time I get a big profit, I change my stop, my exit level based upon the size of the profit. No good. I, I do this rule. It's in my system. I back tested it. No, the sample size is way too low. These universal rules are not picked out of the sky. We just don't follow these take small losses. We don't, you know, I'm famous for this one entry, one exit and a stop loss. Uh, I guess you could have a few more variables there, but this is not a happenstance or random or us just sort of uh, wishing uh, that old timey ideas still were relevant. No, it's based totally on the sample size of trades. And if you're trading long-term, like Richard said, if you've evolved and you have seen that you need to trade longer term, the longer term you trade, the fewer trades you're going to do, even with one entry, one exit, and a stop loss, the fewer, uh, the smaller the sample size and the back test is going to be. So adding more variables, more rules that don't have this sample size to back it up, you know, you're starting to see um, the lack of performance that uh, from the larger CTAs who've adopted this idea. And it's totally predictable because making it too much more than one entry, one exit, and a stop loss, you're losing uh, way too much sample size. Yeah. It's a good point that, uh, that Jerry makes because I could always think of, I have a rule because I'm a very systematic guy. Every time when I'm out driving and I come to a sharp curve, I accelerate. You know, and so far it's never served me wrong, <laughs> and yet that's a bad. It's a bad rule. Uh, interesting about the overrides. I always think that you can actually be very systematic about how you employ overrides. You could because I think that there there are, you could categorize different types of overrides. Uh, I'll say that there are structural liquidity overrides. Okay, and you could sort of say, I do this because there's a lack of liquidity or there's a structural change in the market. I could say I have, uh, there are, we'll call it macro extreme overrides. Let's say that there's a March 2020 event and here's what I'm going to do. And you could sort of say, well, my overrides are going to be such that I'm going to reduce risk or I'm going to cut positions as opposed to I'm going to add. Uh, but what you don't want to do is have a, uh, a systematic uh or a overrides that say, I have a system, it gave me a signal, and I don't like what I'm seeing, so therefore I'm not going to do it. That that's that's what you want to try to avoid. But an interesting part of an obscure piece of research, there was something that was called algorithm anxiety. And what they found is, is that they tested models on predictability, and one was a discretionary model, and one was this very systematic model, and this is for weather forecasts. And they found out that uh, the systematic model did much better than the discretionary. They showed it to 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 you know potential users uh, of the of the results of the model, and then uh, and they actually sort of said like, no, I really like the discretion, even though it has poor predictive power because I like the fact that there's some flexibility so that they were anxious when there was, uh, there was all rules and there's no flexibility that they got very anxious with that. And I think that that's what happens both from a manager's perspective and client perspective. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, I have to ask you, Mark, was the weather better if you follow systematic rules or when you follow discretionary rules? Well, they, they said the predictive power was better by following that. But but I will sort of say, and Jerry's question was really a great question about, uh, uh, about the, uh, the rules issue, is, is, is that 
adding more rules on margin. Sometimes you can sort of say, I'm adding a small tweak and and in the back test and it looks better but that doesn't mean that it's a good thing to add on a go forward basis and uh you know i think that the the problem is you're a model builder you sort of see like oh i built a model but it still has a big drawdown during these uh this certain sub period and you say well could i add some rules to maybe to be able to smooth out that 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 bad event that occurred 10 years ago but that doesn't mean that's a good uh it's it's a good process, even though you could probably figure out some way to, to smooth out the returns or get rid of that drawdown. Yeah, I hope we get to the question about uh, Black Friday. That reminds me. Well, that's the yeah, exactly. Well, that's actually the next one. I I wanted to kind of oh, so so more brought up. Yeah, go ahead, Jerry. Okay. So it reminds me of what Cliff said. You know, uh, sin a little. Like I'm all for sinning. Don't get me wrong. If it's a big, huge profit, and the volatility is 10x from when you put the trade on, yeah, I'm all for sinning. And I guess it's okay to have a rule. It's not going to mean anything but I'm not for a daily rule where you're just sitting a little bit every single day. You know, um, the great thing about this universal turtle rule of <clears throat> reducing your leverage when you lose too much money, and you have to, you know, I'd be in favor of a systematic rule for that, is that it'll, as soon as you do that, you can immediately go back to following the system. You don't have to choose which trades to do. You don't have to choose how to override. You just have had a, you're getting to a drawdown level that is no good. You're unhappy. Uh, and then you make this uh, cutback in your positions. And then we would also mm, commit to trade smaller going forward for a while. Uh, then you just go right back. You know exactly what to do. Follow that system to the T. Um, maybe you should permanently make that cutback. I've done that as well. It just wasn't a one-time thing. I realized my big problem was I was trading to large for my personality. The problem with the turtles is we were using so much leverage trading so short term that these equity cutbacks, you know, happened like weekly or monthly. And so I think if, once again, if you have your act together on your total risk and your portfolio and your systems, then, you know, these things shouldn't happen very often. Right. The overrides are easy. It's the figuring out when to put it back on is the hard part. So, so if you cut leverage during March of 2020, the real question is, when do you put it back? Or I cut my exposure, stop trading market X. Okay, when do I put it back? And and that's the one thing I always sort of say, like, yes, is I said, I can always figure out a time to override. The question is, when do I sort of take take that override off and go back to normal? When yeah. does normal begin again? <laughs> sure. No, absolutely. Just, just like the hedging argument, you know, it's easy to go into a hedge. It's very difficult to take one off once you've gone into one. Sure. Now, uh, Jerry brought up the Black Friday question, which was from Rob. And I also wanted to kind of maybe tie it in a little bit with something that uh, Moritz brought up, which was this concept of, you know, hunting outliers. Uh, it also means we're hunting volatility and it can get messy along the way it certainly got messy on black friday um and um and and rob brought this uh question along and and that is is there some something that we could have done with sector allocation adding non-trend models 
avoiding assets with negative skew, faster trading. And then you say, uh, you know, that I uh, use some trade, or, or that my trend following model did better on the day, and so on and so forth. And, and just, I want to hear your opinion, but it's true that on that Black Friday, um, my uh, trend following model was actually up for the day, very slight. And it was all to do with this group three models that we've talked about uh, on the podcast, which was designed as kind of a plunge protection team. If something happens in in the markets, it's usually something that's going to show up in equities and bonds at the same time. Um, and, and therefore, there are some specific short-term trend following models that's going to latch onto that. And it paid off. But it's also the same models that are losing money in December because now we're rebounding from that. So there is a price for that. But I wanted to to hear your views about this thing about, you know, can you avoid things like that? And maybe I want to start with you, Rob, on this, not because you brought up the question, but, uh, you know, you're just to, to set the context uh, for, for this a little bit deeper. I mean, I'm asking the question because I don't know the answer, right? <laughs> um, I, I So um, I think one of the interesting things about about Black Friday was, for me at least, um, I think what really killed me was was correlations. So effectively, all everything moved in the wrong direction at the same time. So it it didn't feel like because um, you know a, lo- a lot of the time we're we're protected from kind of bad days by diversification. So if one market goes a bit crazy, you know, like um, I don't know crude crude oil last year or um, Euro Swiss, which we talked about already, you're protected because it's only like maybe you've got a hundred instruments in your portfolio. It's only one percent of your portfolio. The damage it could do is fairly limited, right? Unless you've got your risk risk um, scaling completely wrong, your your leverage target completely wrong. Um, but but that Friday felt to me like a day when diversification really didn't help because everything just went completely wrong. So so yeah, it's probably more down to to using different models. Um, and I'm guessing Jerry wouldn't wouldn't. I, I think I'm probably on Jerry's side on this one to be honest with you because uh, you know um, this this kind of um, this extra. Extra model to me feels a little bit overfitted, perhaps. Perhaps I'm being harsh, Niels. I don't really know the model that well, but but um, I, I don't know. I'm I'm all open for for ideas that people have. I have no plunge protection team. Actually, you know what's funny is when you brought up Black Friday, um, two or three minutes ago, I thought, oh, uh, Niels made a mistake. He's probably talking about Black Monday. He wants to speak about Black Monday, but no, no, no. You want to speak about that Friday, which happened like three weeks or so ago. And, exactly. and honestly, it's it's already out of my memory. Um, like so, I while you were speaking, I quickly had a look at my numbers. Um, so November was the worst month for me for my system. I lost ten point twenty five percent, and I guess a large chunk of that of that loss is from um, from that Friday. But when I look at all the months that I've ever had, I had I had one month minus fourteen point eight in two thousand and eight. In two thousand eighteen February, I lost minus fourteen percent. I lost minus fourteen in July of two thousand eight. So these things happen. I mean, this is this is it's it's a big one. It's in the top five of monthly losses for my system. But to be honest, I already forgotten about it, and 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 it it, it doesn't really hurt me because I'm having a, a great trading year, twenty twenty one. And I think these days happen. Um, you have to live with them. Uh, they'll come, they'll go by, and then the markets do something else again. I don't want to build anything, at least I don't want to do that, that um, is just specifically for these for these occasions. Because I know, like I've just said, I have four or five of these months, but this is, this is almost nothing um, compared to all the months that I have under my belt now. So I just accept that they come in that way. And don't worry too much about it. Yeah, no, I think that makes total sense. 
Rich, what are your thoughts about? Uh, yeah, I know your battleship took a little bit of water as well on that day. But... Yeah, so so this isn't the first time that's happened to me. It also happened in uh, February, March, twenty twenty. Um, it tends to be symptomatic of the fact that markets inherently are far more correlated these days than historically what they ever were. So, because this has happened now twice. And really, the way I'm seeing it is it's from these exogenous shocks that come into the market. So, you know, March, February, March 2020 was the COVID-19 outbreak and Black Friday was the Omicron variant. So these are these in exogenous shocks that come in and they, they disrupt all asset classes. So I'm very much like Rob. Um, everything, every, all of my existing trends went down to their trailing stop only a few survived, but I found it concerning and I found that it exposed our weakness as trend followers. It exposed our weakness in short-term convexity. And I'd like to think, well, let's amend that. That's a weakness. You know, when because we're sort of forced to now sort of step out to medium and long-term models, we've got this deficit and this short-term convexity that I think we need to address. So, this is where, A, I need to know, Niels, what your plunge protection models were, and B, um, you know, we've got long vol options, but I'm not a big fan of them because we, if we go down the long vol option short convexity route to supplement our portfolio, we've got this permanent um, premium we'll be paying for that protection. So I'd prefer to think in terms of perhaps short-term momentum models or short-term trend-following models that whilst they might be un, uh, unprofitable in their own right, they are um, over a very long-term um, backtest. Like let's go back to Jerry's early um, trend-following models back in the 80s. You know, these short-term models, perhaps we do embrace them but are prepared to use them to subsidise our portfolios when we get these short-term correlation shocks that I see in our portfolios because... I'd prefer to address a weakness and rather just say, leave it, um, just accept it. Because what happens if um, these these correlation shocks continue on into the future with increasing intensity? That to me exposes a weakness and I'd like to address that. Yeah, no, I mean, before uh, Jerry maybe wants to weigh in or Mark, uh, let, let me just say, so... And this is from memory, but I'm pretty sure it's it's pretty accurate. So if if you remember the episode I did where I just talked about what we wanted to achieve with the trend following model, we essentially divided it into three groups. So classical trend, trend following with a long bias, and then this kind of plunge protection team, meaning short-term trend following models that just reacts much quicker, but only focuses on fixed income and, and equities, because that's where usually you see and can predict what will happen, right? But saying that, I just want to say that when I looked at the long-term performance, so 20, 30 years of the model, each of those three groups have more or less the same performance, meaning that the fast models are not there just to make money on a Black Friday. They're there to make money in their own right, in the long term. They don't always make money, of course, for sure. Uh, and they don't always get it right on a day like Black Friday, but they did this year. And so, but my philosophy has always been, and maybe we'll come to that in, in later in this part or, or maybe in the next week's uh, episode, 
about this diversification across models rather than just diversification across markets. We'll, maybe we'll get to that. But I just wanted to explain to you um, that that's what they're trying to do. Um, so they're not um, overly fitted. They're just super simple short-term models uh, that anyone can really uh, figure out and do that nothing, no magic. Um, but just be aware, they only trade a couple of equity markets and a couple of fixed income markets because that's all they need to do. Jerry, you wanted to weigh in, I think? Yeah, so I'm willing to accept this short-term weakness. I think um, that it's dangerous to try to go back into your systems and uh, try to fit fit some rules to eliminate uh, volatile days in your very profitable trades. And um, I think it shows the importance. I remember one of the first things I heard I learned about trading was uh, – some days all the longs are going to go down, so you need to have some shorts. And I'm like, what? You mean commodities and stocks and bonds and currencies? Yes. So, and we've seen that. You know, that's what happened in March when you talk about stocks going down. And, th- and I sort of said, I think I was trading too many stocks in March of last year. The problem was all the commodities went down too, and uh, everything was going down. So sometimes, you know, if you don't have enough shorts on, you're going to be susceptible to these things. But... I'm certainly not in favor of um, changing my rules to eliminate some short-term weakness. Now, I would trade smaller. I would add single stocks because, like, I had quite a few short stocks on. I mean, I don't think uh, they they really help that much. But I think it's, you know, to, to hunt outliers and get to 130 real markets, you've got to look into the uh, trading the the single equities and not the indices. And what's our bogey? I mean, like our bogey is to beat the S&P buy and hold. And uh, we get so anxious and so uptight. Like, what are we going to do? And there's no way in hell we could be as bad as the S&P buy and hold. It's not even possible. Uh, an 8% return and a 50-plus drawdown? Heck, if you traded 30 markets, uh, diversified markets with trend following, you could never have metrics that poor. So we're trying to correct something that doesn't need correcting and that could damage us going forward. Trade smaller, you know. Um, It's not just about here's my return and my risk. Sometimes the absolute risk, like I can't handle losing 15% in a month. I'll just tell you that right now. So I'm going to trade a lot smaller. And it still may happen, but it's not going to be. Then I'll probably just end up trading a bit smaller again. Yeah, no, I want to get to you, Rob, but I just also want to just comment on what Moritz said. I mean, I I, I think it's completely, um, you know, uh, exactly right as, as what Moritz says. I mean, these months happens. I mean, it's just a natural part of our track record. Look at any trend-following track record, and you're going to see these months. What has surprised me, and I'll just throw that in uh, before you come, come back, uh, Rob, what has surprised me is I looked at a few of the bigger peers we all have in 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 this industry and there were managers who lost so october generally was actually a pretty good trend following month and november was in in many ways a pretty poor trend following month at least from where i sit uh, when i look at our returns but then i looked at other people's returns some managers lost money in october and lost money in november so very different from um, from from what we've seen uh, on our side uh, some people lost money in October, but made money in November. Um, and so I, I really 
was surprised with how different these uh, type of uh, return streams was. Anyways, Rob, that was just to throw in that comment. I mean, actually, Jerry's already said it, but just to say that the the, the only true way of kind of the, the main way of controlling risk ultimately is the amount of leverage or the, the risk target that you're using. So, um, you know, if you're if you're going to run with a, a very high risk target, then when those bad, really bad days happen, and they will happen, you will lose all your money, and there's no way back from that. Um, so, you know, my my risk target's relatively high, which meant that last month I did come pretty close to to fifteen percent, but I'm okay with that because it's. You know, I'm not running my entire portfolio across it. I haven't got any institutional investors, so that's fine. But but you know, if I was running with 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 twice the risk I'm uh, I'm running, which you know um, isn't isn't for for some traders, you know they they are running that kind of risk. Then you know, a day like Black Friday would have would have wiped me out. And uh, you know, so just just yeah, just control your risk carefully. I always remember the line from The Godfather. Is is it when he said, "This is the life we lead." Uh, so in some sense, part of being a trend follower is that. You're looking for opportunities where there's more herding, where there's more crowdedness. And then if there's a reversal in that, you're going to be harmed. Now, I will sort of say the the one idea that keeps uh, keeps in my mind when I think about classic trend following is that it, you're long, long volatility, but you're actually short, short volatility. In the sense is that you want long volatility because you get more spread in prices over the long run, and you, that's what you want to try to capture. But in the, uh, but in the short run, is is that you really don't like the the short term zigs and zags of markets because that could either stop you out. That's going to cause more variation in your P and L. So so the so when you build the models, when you think about this, you're constantly battling this de- a desire to have long volatility in your portfolio. But you got to offset it with the the short uh, with the risk, which is short. You are short, short volatility. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Also, you know, I think we're supposed to let profits run, uh, but not if it's too painful, but not if we have a Black Friday. But no, there's no but. And this is where I think if you if your risk management and is tethered to looking at the closed trade equity versus the OTE, let the OTE do its thing. And you're really trying to preserve that closed equity, the realized equity, two or three steps forward, one or two steps back. And then you're free to let that trade level, I mean, that uh, open, that big, huge mega outlier do its thing and follow your rule. Uh, And then if you don't like that, you're supposed to find another rule. I think there's nothing more important to emphasize than handling these outlier trades correctly, i.e. with the system that you've back-tested that says you're going to make a ton of money if you follow the system. There was a month, uh, a good trend-following month this year where I lost money, uh, and I was like one of the few CTAs to lose money because I had that tiger by the tail Bitcoin, and I handled Bitcoin correctly. I stayed in. It went right back up. I got rewarded in another month. But you know what are you doing? Why aren't you? How are you losing in, in this month? Why aren't you doing something? I'm not going to do anything, except I'm going to follow my system that is proven in the back test and in real time. That if you want to maximize those outliers, you've got to let those profits do what they're going to do, and not this whole idea of what happens on a day or a month is something that was added to trend following in the 2000s 
by people who pay attention to the equity curve, and that led them down the path of all targeting and all kinds of bad ideas. So uh, following your system and using classic trend following is going to be messy. It's just going to make the most amount of money. All right, so we'll, we'll have one more uh, topic uh, that I uh, wanted to bring up with you, and then we'll have a little bit of surprise uh, in round two before maybe we wrap up this uh, part one of our special epic group conversation here. And and my my question to you guys is more about kind of the 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 research side of things, um, and in terms of this thing that, for example, we we always try to uh, to improve our models, so to speak. We want them to evolve. We want them to be better. And um, you know, when we make changes, we we certainly want to see that improvement show up in in our back tests uh, that we are doing, and and we take that as a sign as as some kind of improvement, but. I guess in reality, we we haven't really improved the strategy until we see a similar evolution uh, in live trading compared to the model we're currently trading. So my, my question to you guys is just, uh, what are your thoughts about how do you know if you've actually made an improvement? Uh, just because the backtest says it's better doesn't mean that it's going to be better in the future. Do you keep comparing your current model to the newer model or how do you how do you satisfy yourself in 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 that these changes we make are actually improvements yes what what um i do niels is that um all of my testing basically lets the data speak for itself so um, i i i'm not a big fan of making logic-based assumptions so uh my my narrative is a result of what the data tells me as opposed to an assumption. So inevitably, all of my modelling is based on backtesting, um, but over very extensive data sets to create this large data sample of, of trades that, that Jerry is very fond of telling us about, and I totally agree with that principle. But then um, what I will then do is that... Um, if, for instance, I've identified that there is changes in the models or whatever, um, I these 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 changes must be universal for a, for a start, um, applicable to any liquid market, um, and that's where my testing comes in. But then what I also do is I'm not quick to make those changes, so I engage in this process of of parallel testing uh, using what I call an incubation account. So I will incubate um, these, these changes that I've made that have been developed through my backtest for about a year and parallel test um, that, that backtest and its extension against a live trading account, but using a very nominal trading account, which I call my incubation program. So that's where then I'm cross-checking between my live trading results and against my backtest result, looking at all of the assumptions I've made uh, the slippage assumptions, all of these things within my, my backtest and making sure it's within a reasonable um, um, air, air, um, a reasonable area um, that uh, is not, um, you know, is equivalent to what I'm achieving in my live trading. So 
Once that incubation period is over, then I'm happy then to scale up with those changes. So I'm not, once I've made these changes, they've got a year to run in incubation before they actually hit the live um, market with uh, a large account. Um, but that, that's the way I do it. So backtest is critical for me to develop this, this large trade data sample to evaluate or empirically test my models. But then I do use this incubation program. Um, and in addition to that, as I've mentioned before, I've got this adaptive workflow process which does all of this, but it looks at a rolling window of about the last 10 years to ensure that any changes made to my models, it needs a large data sample of 10 years to substantiate the case. But then I, I might, with my adaptive processes, make those changes. So, the, But the first thing is they've got to um, pass what I call a robustness phase, which is overextended data sets. The second part is they've got to um, pass this rolling window of 10 years, which I call the recency phase. If, they, if it's a conditional statement, if they pass both, then they go into incubation, and then from there um, they go into a live trading account if it ticks all the boxes. Okay, now that's a pretty interesting uh, process. Um, I'd like to hear from all of you actually on this topic, but but Rob, you and I um, recently did an episode where you talked about a massive change that you recently implemented on, on your side. So in, in a sense, you could say it's quite a relevant topic uh, in, in that case, meaning how, I know you talked about that that, that the improvements you saw in your backtest were pretty significant. And this goes. This was about increasing the number of markets you could get with a small account size, and so on and so forth. People can listen to that episode; uh, they really should. Um, but how are you going to know if going forward this is actually uh, an improvement? Um, the honest answer is probably never. Um, and it goes back to to what Jerry keeps saying about having a large enough data set. Um, so the, the 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 strategy I was running and the strategy I'm going to be running now are sufficiently similar that I would need probably several decades worth of data to actually have, you know, quote-unquote statistical significance and determine that one is, is better than the other. And it's unlikely that that I'd be making any change to my system that, that would be so radical that, that, you know, just say a year or two, even two years of trading would be enough to tell the difference. So it really comes back to what Rich is saying. What I'm primarily looking for is... Um, to make sure that what I'm implemented is behaving in a way I expect given the backtest I've done. And the change, that change I made recently is a perfect example of that because the, the, first, the first version of it, if you like, that I implemented was trading way too much. The trading costs were way too high, much higher than, than I'd expect to given the backtest. So I immediately knew something was wrong. Um, and I was then able to go back and, and check the assumptions I'd made in the backtest and check the production code against the backtest code and make sure there was, there was nothing wrong there. And I did manage to, to find out what was going on there. Um, now, this is actually um, a, a, a fairly badly understood reason for doing backtests. You're not doing backtests necessarily just to find the optimal strategy in the past. And in fact, as we've discussed, going too far down that road is a dangerous thing, right? Because you'll end up over-optimizing, curve-fitting, um, and ending up with something that's, that, that isn't robust and is too brittle to trade in the future. But what backtesting gives you is an indication of how this, the thing's behaved in the past. So, for example... How much leverage did it take? How often did it trade? Um, you know, what were, were the bad days like? Does, does it have a 15% down month in there? Um, and with that information in hand as to how the thing behaved in the in the back test, you can then go forward and in your live trading actually compare it to your expectations on the back test. And that is, 
extremely valuable information. Whether it does or does not outperform in the historic back test is kind of well. I, I would be, I would be, I wouldn't probably implement something that was a lot worse in the back test than my existing strategy. But it's absolutely not the case that the only thing I'm looking at in determining whether to implement something is is the back test better based on one or more performance metrics. The back test is there to to give me an indication of what this thing's going to be like in live. Um, and, and um, you know, that that's primarily what I'm focused on when I've introduced a new strategy. Not, you know, is it outperforming what I was doing before? Because, you know, it's I, I will never know for sure one way or the other. I think that's fair. Moritz, uh, your thoughts on on sort of uh, this this uh, challenge we have in terms of uh, are we really improving our strategy or are we just uh, finding a better backtest? Yeah, I'm I'm actually in in, in Rob's camp here. Um you know, as he said, statistically, you would have to live probably for another hundred years to really call the verdict on whether you've done something better or not. And I mean, as an example, as 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 you guys know, I've added some you know spread trend systems um, to my directional single market um, trend following, and I'm having a great time with them. So if I compare this new portfolio that I'm running to the old system that I used to run, right now it's outperforming, but. So let's say that's outperforming for five years and then, you know, I'll say, okay, I've done something that's really good. That is now better. What if it then starts underperforming for five years and the old system starts doing better? And after 10 years of live trading, we exactly get the same type of return. Have I actually done something better? I don't know. So it's kind of like, like Robert was saying, it will take a very, very long time to actually figure that out. Um, I have much less of a rigorous approach than uh, Rich was describing it. What Rich was describing actually sounded to me like um, I would hear it from an institutional money management firm where sometimes their clients come in and they say, what do you do? How do you run your research? How do you implement your research? How do you move from a paper trading account into a you know, small allocation account? And how do you migrate to live trading? AHL has to answer these questions. I don't. Um, and th the thing with all that quote unquote improvement is um, it, it's very easy to slip into um, back testing for improvement's sake uh, and finding something in the data that you want to find because maybe somebody is asking you to find something, maybe an investor. And, and they they say like, well, I'm, I'm not going to give you the money. I'm not willing to pay the fees if you guys don't do any research, if you guys don't evolve the system, if you if you just stay where you are all the time with your system unchanged, just trend following that. It's not worth the money. I'm going somewhere else. I'll go to uh, Winton, right? Because they change all the time and that apparently is a good thing. But you then do another back test and for the sake of changing things, you, you run very close to the line probably of curve fitting something, even though you have clever scientists and researchers sitting there that are trying to avoid that. But if you're always on the lookout for the the, the newest, better thing, um, you're very close to, you're at risk of that. That's all I'm saying. So I look at my, the things that I add to my systems and when I change them, I th I think about them a lot. It, and it may take me a year of thinking um, on, on the sofa, uh, in the car, when I'm skiing, you know, I, sometimes some thought pops in my head. I think over and over and over again. And it just over time, it you know, it drops. And it's like, yeah, I can. That that is what I want. I want that. You know, with that spread system, I had so many fights in my head for years, which is why it took me so long because I wanted to make sure it stays uh, on on a trend following side of things. And so I'm 
I think I solved that problem for me at least by just taking a lot of time, thinking it through, stepping away from it again, thinking about it, and then boom, I implemented um, without without too much of like twisting, moving the dial to the left or to the right. I'll just implement the thing that I want. Excellent. All right. Um, Jerry and then Mark on this topic. So one of the things that I would do is look at all the data and, you know, 40 years worth of data or ever, as long as I could go back. So I wouldn't uh, care what's happened recently or anything less than all of the data. Um, I'm only going to pay attention to the trade stats, average win, average loss, average trade, win-loss ratio. I'm betting and I want to have a juicy bet. I'm not going to, I mean, I will look at the equity curve, but I'm not going to think too much about it other than it's probably going to be a bit worse in the future. I would never do uh, out of sample. I want all of that data. I don't have enough data. I need more. It's so easy to, um, everything is a lot easier when you don't pay attention to drawdown, you know, OTE drawdown. I base the, ret I look at the average trade and I look at the total profit and then I'm, am I risk, do I have to risk 25 basis points, 30 basis points, 50 basis points to get that? That's really what I'm looking at, but I'm going to let those profits run. I'm going to not really care too much about, um, sharp or volatility, just the money. Um, and I'm preserving this capital. I'm, I've got my closed trade equity that I'm looking at, preserving that. My open trade equity historically on every single day is greater than my closed trade equity drawdown. So that makes me feel good. And I'm gonna look at charts. You know, I'm looking at charts. What I've done, I've said, I started looking at weekly charts once and I saw these long-term trends pop out And I said to myself, wow, I want to be in these trades for a year or two. And what parameters do I need to come up with in order to stay in these outliers for a long period of time? And I sort of wrote them down. And then when we did the back test, it was confirmed that this, you know, these type of um, 100 day low or anything from 100 day to 250 day low, you know, this is really a sweet spot. And so I just sort of say, okay, I want to be, I want to define, uh, decide how short term do I want to be. I don't want my average trade to be too low. And then how long term do I want to be? And then I'll just trade like everything in between, you know, in increments of 50 or 25 or something like that. So I really don't want to even choose my systems based upon the back test. I want to verify what I've already chosen. So I'm definitely a logic based um, I define the problem as I don't want to get out too quickly. You know, I don't want to be whipsawed in and out. I've got to get back in if I get out too quickly, which you inevitably are going to do with some of the systems. But then I don't want to stay around too long and give back too much profit. I am very concerned about giving back profit on a juicy trade, but I'm not really worried about defining that as drawdown slash risk. On the big trades, I risk 25 basis points, and that's long, long ago. And I could care less now about that volatility. But I am, as a risk measurement, but I am very greedy, and I want a lot of that profit. And that's what the, the computer says. These systems, if you risk 25 basis points, you will make the most amount of money following these parameters. 
But please, please do not focus on the drawdown and the volatility because it is very uncomfortable. Sure. All right, Mike, I want to hear your thoughts on this as well. And I would love if you could also put that in some context, maybe from how things, uh, how you looked at this issue also when you were uh, running uh, John Henry. Right. Well, the first, I, I like what Rich and, uh, and Rob talked about, because in, in reality is, is that we're running return factories. Our, our inputs are prices, and then we, 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 we sort of churn those prices, and then, and then our output is return. And so when you think about uh, the backtesting issue, is, is, is that there's the backtesting issue to test a model, and then there's the period of time where you're ch- testing production. And when Rob talked about, well, I, I, I want to have the back test, so I want to see if it's actually working well in production. In some sense, that's a separate, uh, it's a separate issue. When Rich also talks about, well, I'm, I'm testing out in production, there's a production testing, and then there's back testing, and those are two separate issues. Uh, that being said, is this is, is that, uh, I think the one interesting point that was made that we often forget is, is that uh, with the institutionalization of a lot of these businesses, you know, most institutions come up and they say, well, show me your researchers. Tell me what your research, you know, I, I, I want to I invest with a firm that has a large research staff. And yet a classic trend follower would say, I'm probably not going to change a lot of my rules. So the need for a huge research staff may not be that large because I have a high threshold for change. And yet institutional investors oftentimes will come and say like, how many PhDs do you have? What do they do? Tell me about all the interesting research you do. And, and once you sort of have all that staff, then you're gonna constantly wanna tinker and change because you've just paid for all of this talent. So you wanna use the talent. And yet a classic trend follower is a very boring manager. So I've, I've done my model. You know, I'm doing some backtesting. I'm always looking at different things, but I have a very high threshold. So the likelihood that I'm going to change things radically in any one year, or I'm going to try something that's radically different is going to be fairly low. And so uh, I was found, in, and this is in the context of, of my you know past life, is, is that we would so they'd say, how big's your research staff? And we had, I think we had very talented people, but it was relatively small because we had such a high threshold and we weren't going to change models much. And then they'd say, well, where's all your PhDs? Where's all of your, uh, you know, what are you doing with uh, with Python programming? And, or what are you doing with uh, R? What, what's the, what do you think of this latest research? And in reality is this is that a, a, a good classic trend follower follows a set of core immutable principles. And once you engage in these core immutable principles, then it's unlikely that you're going to have radical change. Fair enough. Exactly. And, and there's, some, there's just not much you can do because you're going to continue to run up against the sample size. And that's why you have to introduce Sharp and Vol and, and the equity curve and the back test. And there's so many tweaks you can make to improve that back test. But none of them will improve the average trade. Uh, so I think a good strategy, though, for me would have been have all those PhDs and pretend that you're actually using them, but not really let them impact your performance. You can talk about it. And like, I'm not against, uh, and God knows I do it. I 
like take profit. I get out of a position before I'm supposed to. I get nervous. I get rid of like a 10% or 20% in corn and soybeans months ago. Um, it never works, but I do those things. And you could kind of throw that in and say, well, why did you do that? It wasn't a trend trade. Oh, the PhD told me to do that. Yeah. So I think, you know, is proper trend following, classic trend following, uh, is it a real business? Can it be a, a prosperous business? I kind of doubt it, but you can put the trappings around it to pretend. Think about so many people who have those smart people that don't really survive and have really, really hard times. I mean, um, how, would it, how would it have done if they would have just sprinkled in a bit of trend following and diversification and all the hallmarks of what we offer? I definitely think I would have made a lot more money and had a much bigger business if I hadn't been so transparent. Rob, I just want to add that when I, uh, I resigned from a job at HL and I was sort of kept on for a few months, so my job title during that period was Senior Research Fellow which is code for sit over there and don't touch anything. <laughs> and I was one of those uh, PhD researchers. So, so, <laughs> so uh, but it, it, it is really an interesting topic because if you sort of said, I'm going to hire staff to engage on research, the question is always, is it, what do you really want them to do? What is their purpose? And, uh, and then how does that fit within the philosophy that you have? And, uh, and, 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 and have you told them exactly what it is that, what are, what's the threshold for any change? And are they aware of what, uh, of how hard it is to make a good change to, to models? And, and that in some sense from core trend following is its strength, the fact that it doesn't change radically. And that's something that's, that when you get down to it with this backtesting issue, it's always the issue of, of. And this is a constant battles. Do you change models as ch chimes change, or do you keep with a model under the idea that uh, that uh, that the markets will change back to some normal uh, normalcy, and 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 that it's better to stick with the long term strategy? Yeah, cool. With a system like we have that is so dominated by these outlier trades, it's just so difficult to take underperformance seriously and even overperformance. I mean, who would have stuck with the commodities? They stunk. And who would have stuck with trend following? And then all of a sudden we have this great period. That's a lot of commodity trades. So I think it's rare. It happens. You know, I think Richard Dennis and Bill Eckhart, they're the two of the smartest people I've ever met or heard in my entire life. I think uh, Richard is really a smart math guy, Moritz. But I think it's really, Rob, I think it's really difficult to, to have that. It's almost a burden to be able to put all of that aside and um, say, okay, I'm going to not do too much. I'm going to rely upon the trend and one entry, one exit, and a stop loss. It's easy for me because I'm not a math guy. But you almost have a, a really a, a distinct disadvantage not to revert back to more complex things. Yeah, no, I think that's a very interesting uh, point um, and maybe a good point uh, at a good time. We've done almost an hour and a half today so far, and we have another part two uh, coming up. So I think we're going to wrap up uh, part one of our conversation uh, with this. Uh, and we hope, of course, that you've uh, enjoyed it. And if you did, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review so more people can find the podcast and make sure you follow the podcast 
as they now call it. And of course, make sure to tune in again next week for the second part of our trend following conversation. Um, and uh, this will be another one of these special uh, episodes where we are all together. From Jerry, Rich, Rob, Mark, Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.